Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series, Walking Through the Life of Abraham with James Jordan. And here, Jim's going to be in chapter 21 of Genesis, examining the themes of seed and counter seed. We do have some big events coming up that we wanted to keep you aware of. During the week of March 12th through 17th, Peter Lighthart will be teaching our intensive course on Romans and Galatians and Pauline theology. Also in the month of March, we will start our next online workshop. This one will be with Alistair Roberts and James B. John, and will be on biblical numerology. Also looking ahead, we will have our third annual Theopolitan Ministry Conference this year on July 17th and 18th. Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, James Wood, Peter Lighthart, Mark Bryans, and others We'll give talks on the theme of love, and that will be followed by our annual Trinity Feast, which this year will be celebrating 10 years of Theopolis. You can find links to all of these events and ways to register in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening as always, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the life of Abraham. All right, Abraham, Lecture 10, Genesis 21. Let's open with a word of prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It brings life and it encourages us. We ask that as we study the passage before us, your Holy Spirit would guide our thoughts, guide what I say, guide what all of us hear and think about. We pray in the name of Christ our King. Amen. Well, Remind yourself from lecture number nine that we are in the second half of one long story. The first half had to do with the conversion of these Gentiles, Abimelech, and now we are moving on to the birth of Isaac, the departure of Ishmael, and the covenant with Abimelech. Abraham has had to leave the promised land and move into Egyptian territory. And Satan attacks during those three months in order to prevent Isaac from being conceived. But he fails. And now Isaac is going to be born and circumcised. Verses 1 to 7. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Laughter. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? that I have borne him a son in his old age. Well, three prophecies are fulfilled here. In verse 2, we're told that Sarah bore her son at the appointed time, which is the spring, and that fulfills the prophecies in chapter 18, verses 10 and 14, that God would return at the appointed time and Sarah would have a son. In verse 3, the child is named Isaac, and that fulfills chapter 17, verse 19, where God says, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. You will call his name Isaac. Laughter. And then in verse 5, 
Abraham is a hundred years old. And that fulfills a prophecy implied in verse 17. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Isaac and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? So all of these things come. And what is this laughter theme? Well, it's that he who laughs last laughs best. Laughter comes with a reversal of fortunes and expectations. When things seem darkest, suddenly God acts to deliver and reverses our fortunes and expectations, puts down the wicked, and exalts the righteous. Abraham gets to laugh. For years and years he carried the name Abraham, mighty father, and had no children at all. Hey, mister, what's your name? Abram, mighty father. Oh, how many children do you have? None. And then his name was changed to Abraham, father of a multitude, and he had one child, Ishmael. Hey, what's your name, mister? Abraham, father of a multitude. Oh, how many children do you have? Well, one by my bond servant. And Sarah, she has the name princess, but a princess without children. It's a contradiction there. But now they get to laugh. He who laughs last, laughs best. Patience is the theme here, and reward for patient faith. For years they were exposed to ridicule, but now God brings laughter to their eyes. And so Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh. Because who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would ever have any children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, we come to the counterfeit. The child grew. That's in verses 8 to 21. Let's just read all of those. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing, is the word Isaac here. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son, Isaac, or with Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your seed will be named. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your seed. So Abraham arose early in the morning, and took bread and a skin of water, and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and the boy, and sent her away. And she departed, and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up, and she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, about a bowshot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him, and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the lad crying. And the angel of God called Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. And God was with the lad. Emmanuel, God with us. And he lived, grew and lived in the wilderness and became an archer. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Verse 8 tells us about the weaning of Isaac. Probably he was around two years old. And what happens at weaning? Well, in the ancient world, the weaning was when the mother presents the child to the father. Up until this time, the baby has to stay with mom in order to get milk. But now the baby is weaned and he can go and spend much more time with his father. He's not totally dependent on being near the breast. And so the mother presents the child 
to the Father. And in a sense, there's a gift there. And so there's a great feast. And it's on this occasion that Sarah takes a step to protect her child. Up until this time, she's been able to protect him in the sense that he's with her at all times. But now he's kind of moving out from the nest a little bit, and he'll be out there around Ishmael and around the other men a whole lot more. And so at this point, the mother acts to protect the seed. And that's why it's important that it takes place at Isaac's weaning. This is a stage in his development, and he needs the protection now. Now, in verse 9, it says that Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. Notice the word Egyptian is prominent here in the text. We already know that Hagar was an Egyptian, but attention is called to it again here. And she saw him laughing, it says, not mocking. There is no implication of ridicule or outright persecution. There is only laughter. He was probably just playing around, but laughing quite a lot. And Sarah perceives spiritually in the total situation and context, that this is another Egyptian attack. That's why the word Egyptian shows up here. This is one more Egyptian attack on the seed and on the kingdom. Now, how is that so? Well, by laughing, Ishmael puts himself forward as a counterfeit. He puts himself forward as a counterfeit. Who is the true laughter? Is it Isaac or is it Ishmael? And it's this counterfeiting that is the form that the attack or persecution takes. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, this is called persecution. Because when somebody competes for what is yours, it is a kind of an indirect form of persecution. When someone competes for what is yours, it is persecution, even if indirect. And Sarah perceives that. She perceives there's going to be a problem as the years go by, a conflict in Abraham's mind, and a problem as to who the true seed is. And she acts to eliminate the problem, to eliminate the possibility of persecution through counterfeiting. And so she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with Isaac. Now Abraham is distressed about this, and he turns to God in his distress. And God answers his prayers, Don't be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your seed shall be named. And the son of the maid I will make a great nation also, because he is your descendant. God tells Abraham several things. That Sarah's instincts are right. And for the seed to be visible and pure, there has to be separation. There has to come this separation so that Isaac and his ministry will stand out in sharp relief without any confusion. What did Abraham pray for? Well, he was praying for the salvation of his son. God promises blessing in response to Abraham's prayer. You think that Abraham, as spiritual a man as he is, was only praying that Ishmael would receive physical blessings? Of course not. He was praying for salvation, for inclusion in the covenant in the broader sense. And we can't exclude the possibility that Ishmael is going to be saved and redeemed by God. And the passage will go on to make that clear, I believe. So God promises that he will make Ishmael a nation, and that implies Abraham was praying for more for true spiritual blessings as well. Well, in verses 14 to 16, we see 
that Abraham arose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. These are provisions from Abraham's household. All these years they've been living with Abraham and receiving the blessings of the covenant through him. And so they're given the last of them. And he put them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up. And she left the boy under one of the bushes. And then she sat down opposite him and said, Don't let me see the boy die. And lifted up her voice and wept. Well, what's going on here? Well, the springs of water, the Edenic waters that came from her association with Abraham, give out. And Ishmael begins to die. They're cut off from the seed. They're cut off from the kingdom of God. And they begin to die. The water isn't there anymore. And that's important in the symbolism in Genesis. We'll see later on. Well, in this series we won't, but you can go further and read, especially in Genesis chapter 26, you'll see Isaac digging one well of water after another. And it's water that's provided for him and as a ministry to the Gentiles who ally with him. Well, here the water is used up. And that's the end of the blessings that come from being part of Abraham's household. And so now it's time to die. There's nothing left. But then... There is a transition from wrath to grace in this passage. Whatever sins Ishmael may have been guilty of, God is going to reach down and grant him grace. In verse 17, God heard the lad crying. Now we shouldn't ignore that. That kind of language is used of the Jews in Egypt. I have heard the cry of my people in Egypt. God hears his people crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Now, the angel of God is Christ. And particularly, it's Christ as he ministers to people when they're outside the land. And this expression, where he is, means that Ishmael is no longer in Abraham's household. And God does hear the prayers of those outside the sea line. The righteous in the Old Testament, we're supposed to bless the priestly people, but God has separate dealings with Gentiles as well. Melchizedek is an example. Melchizedek did not have to go through Abraham to be heard. God heard him and his prayers where he was. And the same is said here. God will have a dealing with Ishmael that's independent of Abraham, but of course is not independent of Jesus Christ because it's the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, who deals with him and gives him grace. So Ishmael is crying and praying to God, and God hears his prayers where he is, now outside of Abraham's household, and will grant him a separate blessing. Arise, verse 18. Notice all the resurrection language here. We've had death, we've had a transition, a promise that God hears the prayers of this boy, and then there's resurrection language. Arise, lift up the lad, hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. So there's resurrection. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So God provides new water, new water in the wilderness for Ishmael. God provided water through Abraham, and now God will provide water directly on the basis of the future work of Jesus Christ. And so God shows her this well of water. It's God who acts. 
And she filled the skin of water and gave the lad a drink. And then in verse 20, we have the Emmanuel promise. Emmanuel, God with us. God was with the lad. There's no way we can interpret this to mean something less than regeneration and conversion. All the language here indicates it. Why don't we want to believe it? Well, it's because of Romans. It tells us a contrast between Isaac and Ishmael in terms of calling. But in order to talk about sovereign election to eternal life, Paul passes rapidly from Ishmael to start talking about Esau because Esau was not converted, but Ishmael was. He wasn't called to be the seed people, and that's the contrast in the beginning of Roman 9, but he was regenerate. God was with the lad, and he grew and lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He got his own skills. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. That's not a good sign for the future. Look also in verse 22. Abimelech and Phicol say to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Well, whatever that means in verse 22 is what it has to mean in verse 20. You see, God is with the lad. So I don't see how we can take it to be anything other than salvation. So in summary, here we have a death and a resurrection of Ishmael. Ishmael is cast out for being a counterfeit, but God visits him and brings him back to life. And there's a transition from wrath to grace. And we see him converted. And in fact, at the end of Abraham's life, in Genesis 25 and verse 9, we see that Isaac and Ishmael buried Abraham in the cave of Machpelah. Ishmael comes and participates in this act of faith. Now, in the future, the Ishmaelites will fall from grace, just as many other people did, just as Israel did numerous times. And many of them will become enemies of God's people, although the Ishmaelites don't figure very prominently in the Old Testament, not the way the Edomites do. The Edomites are continual enemies of God, descendants of Esau. Ishmaelites, we don't read much of anything about. But this marrying a wife from Egypt is probably not the best sign for the future and indicates that Ishmael himself may be saved, but the future may not be that bright for his descendants because of this Egyptian influence that will be coming in. Well, let me give seven arguments for the conversion of Ishmael because that's controversial. I'd like to pull it together here. The first is the promises of God and the provision of water in Genesis 16. We saw several weeks ago. Genesis 16, the first time that Sarah cast out Hagar, and God met her in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord, again, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, who ministers to people when they're outside the land. He met her, and he made these promises to her, and judged her at the well. And that provision of water that's there, and the promises, are the sign, seal, the covenant, there's the preaching of the word, and then there's the confirmatory sign. That indicates conversion for Ishmael, that God is going to bless him and not curse him. The second line of evidence for the conversion of Ishmael, I think, is the prayer of Abraham. We've been told that God hears the prayers of Abraham, that he's a prophet and that he will pray for Abimelech in chapter 20. And we know that Abraham was not just praying for some mere physical blessing for his son. He would have wanted him to be converted. And I believe God heard his prayer. So I think that's the second line of evidence for the conversion of Ishmael. The third line of evidence is the movement from death to life in verses 15 to 18 of Genesis 21. The water is used up. The boy almost dies. God comes down 
and promises water and raises him up and gives him water. So the third is the movement from death to life. The movement from death to life in verses 15 to 18. The fourth line of argument is God's provision of water, which always, at least in Genesis, has to do with the Garden of Eden and the fullness of life. God gives water and thereby gives life, signifying the Holy Spirit, of course, when we get to the New Testament. But here carrying us back to the Garden of Eden and a restoration to God's blessings. So the fourth argument is God's provision of water. Fifth is the Emmanuel promise. God is with him. And as I say, I don't see how we can take that and shave it off and say, well, God was with him in you know some cultural sense, but wasn't really with him. Why do we want to do that? Why negate the text that way? Let's take it in the obvious sense. Sixth is Ishmael's presence with Isaac at the burial of Abraham. As I mentioned, Genesis 25, verse 9, the fact that Ishmael is present with Isaac when Abraham is buried, I think is another line of argument for his conversion. And seventh and finally is a contrast between Ishmael and Esau. If you want to see an unconverted man, you look at Esau, and you look at the way the Bible talks about Esau in Romans 9, and you look at how Esau behaves. These things are not said about Ishmael. None of these promises are ever made to Esau. We don't read that God met Esau in the wilderness and made any promises to him, or that God was with Esau, or that God gave water to Esau, or that anything was done for Esau. And the contrast is very obvious when you look at all the promises and things that are said to Ishmael. Quite a bit different. And so I think the contrast with Esau is another strong argument that Ishmael was converted at this time. Well, let's move to the last section. Here, verses 22 to 34, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And here we have more conversions of more Gentiles. It came about at that time, at this same time, the weaning of Isaac. You see, the theme here is that the birth of the seed and the presence of the seed brings blessing to the Gentiles. And so here it is. It came about at that time, the weaning of Isaac and the casting out of Ishmael, that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, but according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you will show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. In other words, show good to this land of Gerar. And Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. <laughs> Here's Abraham providing water for Gentiles again, though they seize it. And Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this thing, neither did you tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. But now that I've heard of it, I'll fix it. He says, Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean which have been set by themselves? And he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand in order that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. I dug it. And therefore they call the place Beersheba, well of the seven, because there the two of them made an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, a commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. shows us that Beersheba was in Philistine territory, not in Canaanite territory, not part of the land of promise. Well, 
We've already seen the conversion of Abimelech, and here is a desire for something more, an actual covenantal alliance. Abimelech comes with Phicol, gives us a testimony of two witnesses, and he says, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely. And Abraham swears it. There's a desire not just to be allied with Abraham in some carnal sense, but a desire to be allied with the true God. Again, there's a desire to confirm and make even more pronounced their relationship with God. Not just to believe in the Lord, but also to have a covenantal relationship with Him that's more visible and obvious and that's sworn by an oath. They want to be allied with God. In verses 25 and 26, Abraham basically says that he can't minister without wells. Okay? I need to have wells of water in order to carry out my ministry. I need it for myself. But my wells of water symbolize the ministry that I have to you. Out of my innermost being will flow rivers of living water to you. And so you need to protect my wells. You need to let me have my wells, and then I will be able to minister to you. And so Abraham is a well digger and a grace provider. And the tyrants repent and ally with Abraham and make sure that his wells are kept safe. Why do these Egyptians want to make a covenant with Abraham? To be allied with the true God. And the symbol of Abraham's ministry to these Gentiles is his wells of water. Now, they cut a covenant. That means, in verse 27, that they took the sheep and the oxen and cut them in half and walked between the pieces, just as God had done in Genesis 15. And they said, May the Lord strike us down if we ever break this covenant between the two of us. In verse 31, the place is called Well of the Seven. And the implication is that there is a sevenfold blessing for the Gentiles when they honor Abraham. After all, that was the Abrahamic promise. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Abraham says, if you'll give me back my well and guard the integrity of my work, then you'll receive a sevenfold blessing. I'll give you these seven lambs of the flock, and this well will be a symbol of all the fullness of blessing that will come to you. And finally, we see that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. Tamarisk is a very long-lived tree, and it signifies the permanence of this covenant, it also signifies the everlasting God. Abraham calls on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. In that language, calling on the name of the Lord, it means public worship. It takes its rise in Genesis chapter 4, the last verse. And to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then men began to call on the name of the Lord, which implies public worship. There were enough men to begin to organize public worship. And Abraham organizes public worship here for the Philistines at Beersheba. So here again we see the ministry to the Gentiles. Abraham sojourns in the land of the Philistines for many days in a strange land. Well, two things we can point to in conclusion of this chapter. One is, let's take a look at Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. Verses 9 through 12. It's talking about the faith of Abraham and the blessings that came. I think it's important for us to reflect on the fact that God saved Gentiles in the Old Testament. We are so used to thinking that God only saved Jews and that everybody outside of Israel went to hell. And it just is not the way the Old Testament presents it. 
The Jews had a special priestly calling when they were supposed to bring the Messiah into the world and minister to the nations. But if the nations would hear the word, the nations could be converted, whether it's the Queen of Sheba or whether it's Naaman the Syrian or Jonah's Ninevites or these Philistines here. And that's only because the Bible isn't concerned to give us a total world history. We have no idea how many nations were converted in the Old Testament times or how many of them believed and worshipped the true God. We just don't know. And of course, pagan secular humanist scholars always read ancient literature through the eyes of polytheism, and so they don't uncover any facts that are useful to us. Not until we have a lot of Christian scholars will we be able to get an accurate picture of what the ancient world was like. I don't believe God left most people to die and go to hell in the Old Testament. I believe that the gospel went forth many times to all the world in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Of course, with much greater power after Pentecost. Romans 4, verse 9, Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? Well, did God give blessings to both or just to Jews? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, says Paul, not while he was circumcised, but while he was uncircumcised. Abraham was justified by faith before he was ever circumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith that he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, and that righteousness might be reckoned to them. So who is it who has Abraham for his spiritual father? All true believers. Jonah's Ninevites and many others, whether circumcised or not. Faithful uncircumcised Gentiles had the faith of Abraham. In verse 12, and he was also the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham that he had while uncircumcised. Now Paul is usually taken as referring to the Old Testament and New Testament church, but there's no evidence of that in the passage. I believe he's referring to Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the Old Testament. And I think that this is just one more evidence of how generously God was in bringing uncircumcised Gentiles to faith in the Old Testament. Let me comment just in conclusion on the typology here. The true seed is born into the world and there's a counterfeit and the counterfeit is cast out. And this fact is used in the New Testament to talk about the competition between the Jews and the Christians throughout the book of Acts. Galatians chapter 4 says that the unconverted Jews and the Judaizers are like Ishmael and that they're competing with the Christians. And there's confusion as to who represents the true faith. There's confusion as to who is the true laughter. And that the destruction of Jerusalem, the Ishmaelites would be cast out. Now, they wouldn't be converted this time unless we want to say that the eventual conversion of Israel prophesied in Romans 11 is also pointed to here in this passage. But at least initially, God didn't meet them out in the wilderness and grant them conversion. But the destruction of Jerusalem would clarify things. It would be the casting out of Ishmael, and there would be no more competition and no more question about who the true Christians were. There would be no more sacrifices conducted in Jerusalem. There would be nothing. And everyone would know that the church were the true believers and that the Jews and the Judaizers were not. Similarly, all the prophecies in the New Testament indicate that the real conversion of the Gentile world begins in earnest with the destruction of Jerusalem. So here again, we've seen in this passage that Ishmael is cast out 
and Abimelech comes right away at the same time, and public worship is set up for them in their land. So the gospel goes to the world as the Jews are removed from the scene, as the counterfeit is removed from the scene. And this is the theme also in the book of Acts. Paul always goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles, but as the Jews become more and more hardened in their rebellion, that is, the few Jews who remained unconverted, I believe that great many Jews, of course, were converted. But those who remained unconverted become harder and harder in their opposition when the gospel is clarified and the counterfeit is progressively cast out. And possibly there's a prophetic picture here as well of the future conversion of Israel as God meets Hagar in the wilderness and grants him grace. But we don't see that in the New Testament except as a prophecy. Well, that concludes our discussion of this section, the birth of the seed and the conversion of the Gentiles. When Jesus was born into the world, Gentile Magoi, wise men, came to see him, fulfilling this, and upon his death and resurrection, and the weaning of the church away from Old Testament Israel, after 40 years, the church was weaned from the temple and the synagogue and was able to stand on her own two feet. And then the Ishmaelites, the unconverted Jews, were cast out who had persecuted the church, and the Gentiles began to receive the gospel in earnest. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.